everyone. Welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. Listen, Beefcakes, you can do anything you want on oh, camera. Oh, you blush now. Come on, now, 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 now. Listen, this oh, is my... Man. This is my guy. This is my dude. This is one of my pack. This is who I call beefcakes or most people call Nikki Gay. <laughs> they say it with such conviction because of who he is. Mainly, he is a badass human being who I got the pleasure of getting to know due to an ayahuasca ceremony so graciously brought upon by as so many people know now griff is seems to be the connector of all of the the psychedelic <laughs> wanderers and people who are so curious so i got to meet you mm-hmm. and we became family exactly wolfpack stuff and that's what it is be like that yeah from <gasps> my wolf mother as i call her welcome welcome to the show brother thank you it's uh it's an honor and a privilege to be here well, I mean, I won't lie. I'll, I'm going to, you're one of the smartest friends I have. So I'm going to just be like, it's fine. He's just calling in from Harvard. Oh, there it is. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. There it is. The H-bomb gets dropped. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Like, dude, I honestly try and like, it still feels weird, right? Like it still feels weird to say like, oh, I go to Harvard. Cause I'm like from relatively humble beginnings in a small town in Hawaii. So right. when people are asking and like, I'm a 29 year old freshman, which is always super awkward. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, uh, it's so, kind of the best. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like when people ask like, Oh, what are you doing now that you're out of the army? I'm like, Oh, I'm a student. And they're like, Oh, where do you go? And I'm like, ah, Harvard. They're like, Oh, for like your master's or your doctorate. Cause you're like almost 30. Right. I'm like, Nope, Nope. I am a freshman. My classmates are 18 years old. So it's, it's I weird. am a pedophile. Yeah, dude, it feels like it. Yeah, so like you know, like as most ex soft guys do, I've like tattoos everywhere. So I'll be in class, and like some kid will look at me and be like, "You're not 19, are you?" Like, <laughs> no, bro, I am super not 19. You're like, I'm 19, and I have been through some shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you showed up as a 19 year old to Harvard, tattooed out, and the type of tattoos and the space, like just the way. And you showed up with, with, with your stature as a 19 year old, you would know that that kid has been through some oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. That kid served time. <laughs> that that yeah. kid, that kid not only served time, that guy went hard too. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Not 19. So it's, yeah. So you're not 19. You're, you know, you're still a baby, but you've, you've kind of lived the life and 
that's what drew you to Aya, if I'm not mistaken. You, why don't you try to tell everybody really who, who my, these are the people of how, let me try this. When I talk about my friends that I trust to do anything, the friends that I call, if shit hits the fan, people need to get moved and thing needs to go. I mean, there's a, only a handful of people I'd call. Yeah. So why don't you tell me why you're those people? Yeah. Um, so just start like from the beginning kind of thing. Hit me. Or like, all right, Hit let's me. do it. Um, yeah. So I was in the army. I did 10 years in the army. Um, and I did five years in the 82nd Airborne in uh, 3rd Brigade 1 Panther. Went to ranger school there. Um, like you said, at 19 years old, I was very fortunate. I was part of like this, what they call uplift kids. And I supported a fifth group for this operation in Afghanistan called the Village Stability Operation. That was really my, my introduction to special operations and what that is. And there I met this really awesome team star and really the whole team was awesome. It was, it was a dive team out there. Um, and they showed me what it means to be a man, like in, not in the traditional sense of like, you know, this man shit, but like how to be a leader, like how to take care of the little guy, how to make sure everybody feels special. Um, and not like that, like soft snowflakey kind of way, but in the sense that like, hey man, you're contributing to a greater good and a greater mission here. Um, and that's what I thought the army was, right? Obviously I did like basic training and airborne school and all the other stuff. That wasn't really what the army was. I was just kind of like indoctrination. I was like the training. So getting to work with these guys and see how they do things and be like these leaders, these non-commissioned officers, I was like, holy cow, like if this is what the army is, this is, this is special operations, like I'm in. Um, and then I came back from that deployment is really riding that high and was looking for something to do. Um, around that time, I got back in like 2012 for my first trip and my buddies actually peer pressured me to, into doing this thing called the best ranger competition, which is peer pressured you. <laughs> yeah. Like they just like kind of peer pressured me into doing one of the hardest military competitions out there, which was a blast. It's a ton of fun. Um, it's like a three-day competition, kind of like an Iron Manny type deal, except you get to like shoot stuff and jump out of airplanes and swim and all that other kind of ridiculous army shenanigans. Like, you know, a kid's dream. Um, and then while I was there, I, I was like the Ranger headquarters right there. Cause it's at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I was like, Oh man, like I've heard about these Ranger guys. You guys are, yeah, I've heard bad. about these people. Yeah. Cause when I was asking about uh, the green beret guys I was with on my first deployment, I was like, yeah, like, what should I do? I want to be in special operations. Is that whatever? And they're like, yeah, you're a good kid. You're just young, man. Um, and they're like, you should go be a ranger. Like you're a hard charging kid. Go be a ranger, go get your ranger tab and then go fuck shit up with them. And I was like, what do they do? Like, what's this? I love that. They just tell you like, just go be one. Just yeah. go be a ranger. It's yeah. not even a big yeah. deal. Just go do it. Yeah, dude. Just go kind of knock that little thing out. Um, and I was like, what do they do? What's their dealio? And they're like, dude, they fucking kill people. Like, <laughs> If you want to go do Call of Duty shit and fucking kill people, like go be a ranger. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds awesome, dude. Um, and then, so I, when I was there, the ranger headquarters right there, I walked in and was like, Hey, this is who I am. I'm with 82nd doing best ranger. Um, I want to drop a RAS packet, which stands for ranger assessment selection program, which is our little eight week kick in the dick. Uh, that kind of weeds. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It just kind of messes you up for eight weeks. I um, and I was like, Hey, I want to do this. And they're like, who are you? Like, what the fuck? You know, like you kind of get the cold shoulder kind of thing. And I really have to make my case that I was like, Hey man, like I really want to come here. And I did that. And then, so show up to second range battalion. I did my, uh, or, I'm sorry, before that went to RASP, did the whole thing, show up to second range battalion in Seattle, Washington and deployed five times with them and had an absolute blast and got to do the call of duty stuff. 
you know, it was, it was to kill some motherfuckers. Got to kill some motherfuckers. Yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting now. Right. Cause like, um, so which kind of leads me to the Aya, right. Kind of like all roads, right. all roads lead home as they say. Oh, in the fields. Roads. Um, which is interesting. Cause like, yeah, I got to do the thing. I got to go to war. I got to go to combat. I got to be a ranger. Right. Um, you know, like, and I, by no means is I like the fucking Terminator out there. Um, there's but you your purple heart recipient yeah 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 so yeah, like so fuck you though right because like <laughs> don't be like oh yeah it's not like i'm not like the terminator or anything so you're a purple heart recipient right yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh, cool so let's restate that previous statement yeah you're yeah, pretty they did get me they got uh they got a handful of the frag in 2017 uh october 4th 24th 2017 um there's these guys in the madrasa and they were kind of being assholes <laughs> more or less right i mean there's just the taliban yeah there's the taliban um so they're held up in there we started our call out and as we we're kind of like hey guys come outside you shot by coalition forces bring your women and children out uh for people who don't know you know it's not like the movies really where like america just shows up in the middle of the night and just starts like blowing stuff up generally speaking we're very like we have our afghan counterparts and we're like hey guys uh, women and children come outside. We don't want to hurt you guys. And then we always ask them to surrender, more or less. And we always put the ball in their court. Um, sometimes. And how often do they actually take that opportunity, though? Nowadays, a good amount, which is interesting. At least the women and children do uh, nowadays. Um, pre like 2011, maybe even like 2013, it was a real toss up uh, on callouts back then uh, because you know a known tactic for these guys was to use women and children as shields, you know, or they'd strap like a SFS on a kid or a woman and send them out and then try and, and then blow them up, right? Because they know like as Americans or generally as a Western force, we don't want to like hurt women and children. You know, we're really there for a bad guy and we just want the bad guy and we'll get out of your hair if you give him, if you give them up, really. Um, and they, they kind of use that against us. Um, I guess that's what kind of makes it the whole terrorist thing. Um, you know what I mean? No, but it's yeah, a, I mean, so, no, the reason I'm prying yeah. though, Ige, is because a lot of people who listen to this, they're not, they listen to this because they want to hear from people like you and they want to understand your tactics and why we do what we do. And I always like to leave the door open for an opportunity to explain not all of how you do what you do, because obviously I feel I have mixed feelings about when people ask really, really deep questions that the knowledge doesn't need to leave you know, our country, there's reasons why we keep things quiet and how we do what we do. But I still think that there's a learning opportunity for individuals to understand what it is that we actually do when we're there, yeah. uh, instead of what the media tells them what we do, and the perception yeah. that goes along with that. So I'm glad that you explain it in the way that you do. It's important. It's really important to get people to see, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody that isn't on the list of things that we need to go and execute period 100%. 100%. Yeah, no, I get that a lot. Um like it's interesting whenever kids here find out I'm in the military like you know because I always lead with like yeah, I mean obviously like you're not 19, right? Like no, I'm not 19. Like why do you look older? I'm like oh, I look older because, you know, da 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 da. So it's like I try and like I'm not trying to dodge the question, but you know, you don't ever want to lead like hey brother I'm Nick. I was in the army for 10 years. You know, you're not one of those guys. Um, but it always somehow comes up and they always ask, and I always tell them like, Hey man, I'm an open book. Like, you know, I think one of the problems with like PTSD and the veteran community these days is they're not, there's a fine line between like talking about it 
and being able to like verbalize it, get it out there and like discuss your emotions. And then there's the line of like being like, like bragging about it. You know what I mean? Like, hell yeah, brother. I smoked five Hajis. And you're like, oh man, like you may have, but like, is, is that the attitude you went about it? Like, did you really want to do that? Or was that, were you trying to achieve a greater good? And that's what happened kind of thing. Right. So mm-hmm. anyway, so I'm always very open about talking about it. And I think a lot of people a, either don't talk about it and kind of bottle that up and they're, they deal with that like moral dilemma inside. Um, so I was telling kids like, Hey, like, I'm willing to talk about this. If you have a question about me being a veteran or anything like that, like, let me know, like anything's on the table. You know, I'll talk about any mission, how if I've ever killed anybody, like my thoughts on anything. I'll tell them like relatively uneducated on a lot of the political stuff. But if you want to know my opinion, I'll tell you what I think. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the problems with the community is people aren't willing, willing to talk about it. And they have this like predisposed, like I have to have a thousand yard stare and I have to be like clammed up and not talk about the war. But it's like, dude, that's something you did. That was like a huge part of your life. Like you should open up and talk about that. Like this isn't Vietnam. This is World War II. Like you're not going to come home and there's not going to be people like spitting on you and calling you a baby killer. At least this part of the war, maybe earlier in the GUI. Um, Maybe earlier. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit earlier. But at this part of the war, you know, so it's like, it's okay to talk about it, you know? Um, But yeah, so shit was like. No, it's yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, no, I do that. I, I tangent people. Um, yeah. the, the thing with the type of operations that you, you were involved in, you kind of, I, you alluded to a little bit of them when we were, when we first met, we were kind of, you know, the group that we went with was an all veteran group. It was ho- hosted by heroic hearts. Um, and we had, a network of people there that we, there was no need to gray man it. And what that means is to go into a situation with a bunch of civilians and, you know, blend, blend in. Don't, don't bring anything up. Don't say anything that'll make someone's face melt off. Just, just do the deed and leave. And so um, our group was very open. Yeah. Our group was ruthlessly open and, for somebody who is not involved in the special operations community from a combat standpoint, but only from the tour that I did and people want to say whatever they want to say about that anyway, but I know what I did and I'm confident in what that was. And what I also understand from that though, is tours are nuanced and there's a lot to them and everybody has a different perspective on their tour or their operations but for you you seemed to you've done a lot of them and they are not tours like I did yours are go in go hard go fast kind of things or what what does Griff say it's the so I I remember asking him I said why so why are SF guys not hit near as much as like us like the pokes right and he I remember he leaned into the camera and he goes he goes look at me we go in at night, we go in at night, we drive really fucking fast and something else. And then I was like, so that's it. And he, and he repeated the sentence again. And I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. No, it's I get it. It's a very grift thing to do. It's a very, you guys do things differently though. So for you, yeah. when you went to the Rangers and you deployed for the first time with them, did you feel anything psychologically happen after your first experience firing a weapon at someone? Yeah. Um, 
the intimacy of it all or the last, it was, it's a very interesting thing. So like the first time I ever tried to kill someone was when I was 19 years old on my first deployment, we're shooting mortars at people. I was, I was a mortarman. Uh, I live in Charlie in the army and we got a fire mission. Uh, our, our little VSO was getting attacked and we shot mortars at these guys. Um, and that was really my first introduction to combat. Um, and that one was an interesting one because as a mortarman, you're generally on the defensive, right? Very, I mean, sometimes you are on the offensive where you're like, Hey, we got to get those guys over there, but generally like we're getting attacked and we're defending our base. So right. it was very much like, Oh, I'm protecting my friends, protecting my brothers, the community. There's only uh, 32 of us on a hundred by hundred meter compound that we hand built. So I was very, wow. yeah, we had like nine months, no running water, no electricity, shitting in holes. It was super cool. Camping trip. Solid. Yeah, it was a great time. Um, yeah, we like hand wash clothes on, on um, washing boards we made ourselves. It was, it was interesting. Um, so in that context, trying to kill those people was like, I'm defending my family, right? I want everybody here to go home. Uh, it was interesting on the ranger side of things because you're now on the offensive, right? You are a direct action unit. We are the best in the world, arguably, that we are the best at direct action ops against high value targets. So the intimacy of it, as in like, it was close, you know, like generally speaking, if you're banging compounds, it's, you know, within a hundred meters or so, right? You, got, you guys are getting after it. Um, but then the lack thereof the intimacy was also interesting. So I was really caught between these two things where it's like, oh, I've been in combat before, quote unquote, I've been shot at, I've tried to kill the people that try to shoot at me. Um, but I've never been like close, you know what I mean? I've never like, I distinctly remember one of the first firefights I got in with a regiment uh, with second range battalion, we were hitting this compound kind of on like this little hill thing. And my co-team leader and I kind of came around into the front of the breach, like about 35 yards away, 35 meters away. And we were on a mound so we could kind of conduct the call out as our uh, partner forces came on the door. Cause they're actually going to do the entry and the, and like be the actions on for the call out. They went in, they silent cleared. Uh, what a silent clear is, is they like slowly open the door. They didn't bang it. They didn't do mechanical breach. They slowly open and then try to go in there and just like grab these guys. Anyway, so you hear, you see these guys like shuffle in and you're like, bah, 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 and you hear an AK just start ripping like, bah, like half a mag goes and all our partner forces comes running outside. And we're just like, oh shit, that's probably not good. And this is like my first mission as a ranger. I, I came in as a fire team leader. So me and my co-team leader on this mound and the dude, I guess they didn't silent clear very well, woke some dude up and he just started ripping the AK and all the guys came piling out. And then that guy came out of the door and just started dumping his AK at us. And so me and my buddy are kind of on this mound and all, you know, shit splashing all over the place. And that was one of the first times I've ever had a dude like try and kill me, you know, like when in my first deployment, they were trying to kill us, but it wasn't right. like. Fuck that Asian guy. <laughs> you know? like, Fuck the Asian guy on yeah. the other side of the mound in an American yeah. uniform. Yeah. Well, what is he? 13 years old. He looks stupid in that uniform. Fuck him. You know? Um, and, you know, and then, you know, the gunfight ensued. It ended up pushing up to the point where we call it like hand grenade hot potato with these guys. Um, we're on the, we maneuvered onto the side of the building. We're throwing grenades in, they're throwing grenades out. And we ended up fragging all these guys going in there and, and finishing the fight. Um, and then we, you know, we have to pull the bodies out and take pictures of them and confirm or deny who these guys are and all that jazz. And that's where I'm saying is the intimacy and then the lack thereof. It was close. You know what I mean? Like we're in hand grenade range within a building. You know what I mean? This guy's shooting directly at me and my buddy. Um, so you're like, oh man, this is a personal fight now. But that thereof, the intimacy was interesting because I didn't feel bad, I guess. Like I didn't 
they're, they're bad guys. There's a reason why they put a, you know, special operations task force against these guys. So like it, it was psychological in the sense that I realized I didn't mind killing these guys in that way, which is very weird. Cause I thought I'd be like, Oh man, like this is a human, like I'm a fellow man, you know, like I should feel this heavy burden. You know, you read all these books and see these movies and like the kid kills a dude for the first time. And he's like changed after. And I was like, these guys were dicks, you know, like there's a reason why we're here. You know, they, they put millions of dollars to put me on your doorstep with these guys so there's a reason for it. Like you were justifiably a bad human being. Um, so it was, it was interesting in that sense. Because you guys are not sent to just any old targets. No, 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 no. If you end up with a ranger task force on your doorstep, you fucked up real bad. And what are you talking about here? How, how bad do you have to be in with the Taliban or ISIS or on a list? Like you've had to be, I mean, how many, there's decks of cards. Yes. Yeah. Like you gotta be up there. Like put it in context. Like if you weren't that high value of a target, you'd have the conventional military going after you. If that makes sense. Right. Like you just kind of have like a sledgehammer rolling through town. And then those guys would just be kind of knocking on doors. Like think of it as like, like a street cleanup by cops where there's kind of going through kind of like knocking on doors, cleaning out bad places. Like you've got to be considered a high value target by the United States government. That means we've allocated assets and all kinds of other things. And that you've really focused the attention of parts of the American intelligence community, if not like the joint intelligence community to get us on you. You know, like you're, that's the special part. Like, congratulations, you are now special you're, enough. You're special. You're, yeah, you are so special that special operations wants to, you know. Come hang out. Not, yeah, come kick it. We'll just have a talk. You know, we'll have chat a talk. Yeah, talk. Yeah, you guys have great talks. I see how oh, your talks go. Conversationalist. Conversationalist. Is, yeah. yeah, that's definitely a word we, I would not use. Um, and most of the time, most of the time, if you're if you're having you guys show up, mm-hmm. on average, is it really to gather intel and pull them, or is that to just eliminate them, or is it a case by case basis? Generally, intel. Everything's intel driven, right? Right. Like we always want to go after the intel because. Don't be wrong. Firefighting school, like actually, actually, I probably shouldn't say that. Generally speaking, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting. It's thing, not but. that it's cool. There is an adrenaline aspect to it that is hard to mimic in any other activity in life, and so it there is something that happens to your brain and the chemicals when you're in those situations, and that can become addictive to individuals. So I don't. When you say firefighting is cool, I know what you mean. My listeners may not, so I try to explain it to them in the sense of. He doesn't glow. There's no glorification to his job. Thank this you. is what he did. And you find a way to cope with that and rationalize and wrap your brain around whatever that means. And however is necessary, however it is necessary to get that job done. So if, when you say firefighting is cool, what the aspect you're talking about is the adrenaline rush, the right. movement, the stuff you've trained so hard to do, you actually get to implement. So exactly. that's what you mean. Yeah. A conversationalist. That's conversationalist that's why you're the host of a badass podcast right. um, yeah but no yeah so we're generally going after intelligence um and you know a guy's better alive he's always better alive because he can tell us what's going on build up a network right. and he can do all kinds of stuff for us that he can't do obviously dead so we're always intelligence driven and that's why we always do call outs because we want him alive we we want him to give us information we want the information that he has in his compound and everything like that because 
you know, a lot of times if these dudes do come and give up, like they'll tell us what they know, or they'll tell us where stuff's hidden in their compound. And, you know, a lot of times we're going after a SIM card, right? It's, it's no secret that like we're going after cell phones and things like that. Um, so it's like, if you're going after a SIM card, like how many places can you have a SIM card in your house? Right. Like, yeah. And those houses too, my gosh, they have carpets that are layered over carpets on walls that protect other things. Like it's, it's strategic. And if you can just figure it out, it's much safer because it's very easy to hide explosives in those walls. They're mud. You can tell if something's been, it's not like you're, you're breaking into a house, you're kicking a door down in Vancouver where you can tell if, you know, the drywall has been manipulated. Yeah. Yeah. It's like how do you tell which hole was dug in your dirt house, right? For what reason? And then, you know, again, the stuff they're hiding is not very big. So a lot of times if we get these guys, they'll just tell us where it's at. And we're just like, oh, Oh, thanks, man. And we'll, we'll go get it. Right. So we're always intelligence driven and we're always risk adverse. We're never trying to get in gunfights. We're never trying to really do that. We always, it's a good night if everything's peaceful, you know, mm-hmm. that means everybody's going home. Right. And that's it. And that's why I like to hear you talk about it the way you do, because I know your thoughts on, I know some of your thoughts on combat and things like that. And it's, you have a really interesting perspective and you have value to your perspective because you are very seasoned in what you do. As you went along tour by tour by tour, I do wonder, did your mindset change? Did your attitude towards human beings and culture and, and, and all of that, was there a change, a shift or a noticeable um, way that you started to look at things compared to when you first got in and you had your first tour? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. So I journal, right? I'm, I'm a big journaler and uh, really shout out to Griff. He, he really helped push me along with that. Got my handy dandy journal right here. Right. I've had one of these um, almost the entire time I've been special operational. I recognize that cover. Yeah, you do. <laughs> um, so it was interesting to watch the degradation of empathy, I guess, go on over time really um and that's one of the things that kind of pushed me to aya because uh, i looked back through some of my earlier journal entries from my first deployment and it was very much like an empathetic view upon the afghan people and the people that were fighting right i very much like related to what they were doing and i was like oh man this sucks like we went after these targets we killed these guys and it's like this guy probably didn't have much of a choice you know like he probably was doing the best that he could with the cars that he was given you know and I watched that almost that innocence. It was, it was very interesting being that young. Um, I was 24 when I got to special operations. So, really, you know, a baby of sorts. And I was very much like every young adrenaline filled wannabe machismo, John Wayne kind of guy. Like, I wanted to go to war. I wanted more combat, right? And that's why I volunteered for special operations. I wanted to get into the fight. But I also had the empathetic perspective where I looked at it and been like, oh man, like these are people too. Right. Like this, there, this is a cause and, you know, who knows if things could have changed, but over time, I definitely got callous. I lost that empathy. And it was interesting when I got out to read my old journals and see that degradation because I became increasingly more violent, I guess, or, or adept to violence or like open to it. Like it was, it was weird because near the end, um, I looked back at my journal when I was getting out of the army, which kind of pushed me to Aya. I remember a, a journal entry right before a mission and we're going after these guys who were known IED makers and we knew they had rigged their village with IEDs. 
but you know, like anything real bad guy, real special fella. So the special guys had to go get him, kind of thing. And on the way in, they're like, Hey, you know, when we're getting ready, like, Hey, heads up. These guys may know that we're coming. Um, da, 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 da. And they're like, Hey, we're, we may take casualties tonight. So like, you know, really get your shit together, boys. And I remember looking at my journal entry from that night and it was like going on a mission against an IED guy, whole village might blow, probably going to die. Fuck it. And I was like, Oh, that's not a healthy spot to be in, you know? And then like on that deployment, like these instances like that kind of kept coming up. And it's interesting enough that I'm journaling it. And as I'm journaling it, I'm not realizing it. I'm just kind of like in a bad spot mentally and just writing this stuff out. We had a conversation after uh, a gunfight one time and my, you know, we finished the gunfight, all the stuff happens. We, we do all the things we're supposed to do afterwards. And my buddy leans over and he's like, yo, are you even here for God and country anymore? And I just leaned over. And I was like, bro, I'm here for the fucking violence. And I was like, you know, and like I went home and I wrote that conversation. I thought it was funny. You know, like I wrote it down and then I went back and looked at it and I was like, oh no. Oh <laughs> like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> like that's not why I joined the army. I didn't join the army just to glorify war, or be there in the violence or do all these things. I joined the army because I wanted to help people. I believed in the cause. You know, I, I thought I was here for God and country and all these things. And I realized that, like, I would say this sounds really douchey to say, because it sounds like a cheesy, cheesy action flick line. But like, it got really easy to kill people. You know, like, that intimacy of like, of like, oh, man, this might be a human or like, you know, da, da, da. like, it was just zero, it bothered me zero. You know, one of the last humans I killed, I killed with my pistol. Um, and Not so close. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, for the record, it wasn't like, like a quick draw, like John Wick kind of thing. Um, the guy was wounded and, you know, we went and finished the fight. Um, and I finished the fight with my pistol. And I remember walking up, you know, as we were about to do this thing and being like, oh man, like this guy's like, I was like, man, fuck this guy. Like, fuck this guy. Make me walk this far. It's cold as shit. I'm hungry. My feet hurt. You know, my backpack's heavy. Like, fuck this guy, dude. I'm, I'm over it. You know? And then, after we finished that firefight and that engagement was over, um, my buddy rolls up and he's like, yo, do you get a fucking pistol kill, dude? And I was like, yeah. And we like high-fived. And I was like, holy shit, that's not where I want to be mentally, right? Because I'm, I'm glorifying that violence. I'm, I'm glorifying that kill. Like, it's, it wasn't a good spot. And it was interesting that I had like, I was able to look at my journaling and look back at it and be like, oh, man. Like, oh, man. Like, what would 18-year-old Nick would have thought? Like, the kid who wanted to join because he... He wanted to help these people. He wanted to like defend freedom and all these other things. And I was like, oh man, like not a good spot. And uh, I guess that's kind of how I realized, like I, I knew something was off and I didn't know at the time it was empathy, right? I didn't know that I was like shutting out these emotions and all those other things. Cause you know, I was happy. I was sad. I was able to go through all these other emotions. I just didn't know they weren't like resonating and hitting very hard. Um, and then I began to search and like really, really look around and reach out into the veteran community of like, hey, like I'm getting out of the army soon. I'm not healthy mentally. Um, what, like, what can I do to get ahead of this? And I, I'd gone to a therapist and stuff already, but you can lie to a therapist. Like it's easy to fucking lie to a therapist. Like, yeah, dude, everything's Gucci. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, cool. And you're just like, all right, cool. That was fun, I guess, whatever, I'm out. Right. And then, so I knew that wasn't working for me and journaling was working, but it was very slow. It was very hindsight kind of thing. And if you don't take the time to realize that you need to look back, um, you'll never know. And then that's kind of 
eventually got put in contact with Griff through a mutual friend, brought me in, and then got to meet all you amazing people and build the wolf pack. I know. It's, I, you know, I remember when we got there, I knew I'd, I'd never met Griff. I didn't know him yet. I had interviewed him. He started sponsoring the show. So combat flip-flops came on and that's how I kind of interviewed him. And, you know, he saw right through the, what it was that, 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 that look of like, I'm fine. Like that, like, <laughs> like he saw right through that. No problem. And, you know, when I got to where we went and everyone was there, it was super odd because I thought I was going to be really intimidated because he's like, Hey, so the people that are coming to this, let me give you a little taste of who they are so that you understand. And I was like, Oh, so these are okay. So these are the people I've been missing in my life. These are the humans that these are the go fast people that I know were out there. I know you're all out there. I know you're all playing, but I never knew. And what was really amazing was to get to sit down and be welcomed into such elite human beings because every single one of you were had your own, you carried your own weight across the board in, in such a spectacular fashion. Every time a story came up, I was like, holy shit. And then somebody else would tell a story, like, holy shit. And it was, I was just like, oh, oh, I am not cool enough to be in this room. And that's just what it felt like. And but no one ever made me feel like that though. I put that on me and you know, something happened after we, we all did ceremony. It was like this great, great equalizer. This was this moment where we were all going through something and we all realized to do this and be successful, we would have to be vulnerable. And that is not a group of people I expected to connect with or hit with because I didn't realize that many of you would be that ready and just hurting that bad that you needed to get it out. And it was an honor to sit there and hear these stories. But what was really fascinating to me was I got to, I got to learn a lot. Um, I got to learn a lot about what was going on in country when I was there that I was never, you know, information. I was above my pay grade. I got to learn, Hey, he was there. Oh my God. I know that place. Like I, I connected with some people I never thought I would ever get to connect with again. And not only to do it with people who genuinely want better for themselves and to heal, but with people who the worst thing, I know the worst thing you've ever seen is the worst thing you've ever seen. And you can't blame somebody for having never seen anything horrific or done anything horrific, but to have the group of people like you, you know, just be like that. You guys were the heaviest of the headers. You guys were the hammers. You guys were the people and I'm so grateful to, to just be allowed to talk with you because I know you guys do things like turned up to like 11. And I can only imagine the toll that takes on your psyche, on your soul, and just you and what you take on. I did one tour. I had one really, really bad operation and that was all I could take. So to know that you do it on a repeat basis, it's just, it's crazy. It's like, you guys are the guys to me. When I first, when I first got into the military SF, people were like, 
You guys are the elite for a reason. And you aspire to be good like they are. You aspire to be proficient like they are. And I don't know, to me, just I'm rambling at this point, but to me, just being friends with you guys, people who so genuinely want well for one another, so genuinely want to heal and, and want society to understand what it means to do that job so that we can look after people properly. So they understand the severity of that job, what it does to the psyche, you being willing to sit in a group of strangers and just pour everything out. That's by far, in my opinion, the most brave thing you've done to date. Oh, it was terrifying. Two things. One, I would not say I'm elite. Uh, there's elite guys I served with. The unit itself was elite. I was just a dude being a dude doing my okay. job. Okay. Um, like, yeah, there was some bad motherfuckers that I had a very, very, very privileged to get to serve with. Um, and those dudes were very elite. Um, I was just a dude being a dude. Uh, and dude, when in that group, I remember when we all first met, um, granted, like, you know, Brian and I went on our little fucking dick measuring contest and, you know, our personalities and all that stuff for Brian, people know Brian Bishop. Um, yeah, he's been on the I show. Remember, he's oh, yeah. been on the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so know for everyone who knows Brian, like, you know, how that, you know, all that stuff. Um, so him and I are out there talking shit, having a good old time, busting each other's balls. And then Kelsey comes walking in and dude, I remember you like went off your thing. You started talking shit, doing the whole dealio. And you walked out and I just leaned over to Brian, like, holy shit, bro. She is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> That's an angry little elf. Yeah, I was like, holy shit. That is one angry little Canadian man. Like, holy yeah. cow. Like, she terrifies me, dude. <laughs> oh yeah. I was, the, I was so unwell when you met me the first time. Dude. Yeah. No. Same. So angry. Same. Dude, you used to, sh you, I remember like after the first ceremony, you remember you sitting on the floor in the kitchen and you were like telling stories. And I remember I leaned over and I said to Griff, I was like, when did he get out? He's like, oh, like November. Yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, this is making so much more sense. Dude, I remember, I forget how it came up. Someone asked like, oh, like how fresh out of the military are you? And I was like, oh, I killed a human within the last like four months. They're like, oh, oh, you're super fresh out of the military. I was like, oh yeah, like oh yeah, yeah. in the boots kind of thing. Yeah, I still start. I still march once in a while. Like it's still yeah. a concern. It's still a reaction. Yeah, yeah I'm doing mag changes in the mirror like a freaking weirdo. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I could picture that too. That's oh, what man. is the best. Hey, nothing like uh, some combat flip flop ranger panties and doing mag changes. Oh like, my god, I gotta tell you, I um. When we did, so a gay came up. So Canada, because most of you know that I live in Canada, um, in Canada, we, we closed our borders during COVID and we could not go anywhere. I mean, we still can't. Canada is very much a lockdown communistic state at this point, in my opinion, and people call that drastic or dramatic. Okay. Well, let me tell you one thing. If, if the definition of being able to move freely in and out of your country is the definition of freedom, which mm -hmm. it is. So we can't do that. So when your freedom is taken away, then that genuinely starts leaning towards a communistic type of state. So yeah, Canada is there. So leave me alone about it. Number two, we did not allow Americans into our country. And after Aya, we all kind of got together and decided combat flip-flops and brass and unity was going to do a little bit of a crossover. And I wanted to do something special, but because I couldn't go down there and they couldn't come up here, 
fortunately, I live near this place we call COVID Park, and it's no man's land. And you can go from America and Canada. You can just, I can cross a ditch. I can go down a ditch and up the other side. And Americans can come to the same place and we can hang out and intermingle. We can have weddings. We can uh, traffic. We can pretty much do anything. And so I, I figured, why not do our photo shoot for the collab there? And fortunately, after meeting you guys, you were like, yep, I'll do that for you. And you drove all the way up to COVID Park and we met and we did a hilarious couple sets of videos. Well, it was a great time. I'm not going to lie, buddy. That one, that, that video of you just taking the sunglasses <laughs> off or just the one with my husband where you lean down and you both, oh my God. it was solid. Dude, it doesn't, dude. And that weed was so good. Oh Mine? My, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. Didn't know what was coming down from over there. I was like, holy cow. I was like, I don't even know how we're going to make this commercial right now. I know. Zoomed me out. I don't good. mess around. It's funny because people think that I, um, they're like, oh, you, you know, you, for somebody who just started dabbling in psychedelics, like you talk, you talk about it like you like live the life. I'm like, listen, listen. There's plenty of things that you don't know about me that I don't tell the world. I'm all right. I know I, I know about stuff. I got the stuff. I got stuff going on. It's fine. Yeah, so moves. don't worry about the cannabis consumption and brands and strains I use. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. But the other stuff that we had when we were there, that other stuff. Now you know what stuff I'm talking about. Now Ooh, that, that stuff fucks hard. Oh, that I do. I still got some. Um, oh yeah, solid. Yeah, so Iowa was your first psychedelic experience, right? Uh, it was my first intentional psychedelic experience. I had, oh. yeah, I had one of those. Somebody put psilocybin in my food in high school. Oh, and shit. Um, I was tripping balls. I remember all I can remember, really recollect, is going running up a set of stairs, going into a bedroom, going under the covers, shutting my eyes because, and locking the door because, um, little Smurfs like were coming under the door and they had like knives and they were chasing me. And so I was hiding, but every time I closed my eyes, all I could see were kaleidoscopes. So I had to keep my eyes open, but then everything was spinning. So I basically, I, I ran that situation until it wore off. And then I was like, I'm never doing them again. And then I started, uh, micro dosing and then using psilocybin when I got was starting to wean off of the pharmaceutical medication that the government had me on. So cannabis was the first step in getting off of the medication that I'd been on since deployment. And it was really the catalyst point that turned things for me more towards the plant-based medicine. Yeah. And so I, I was, you know, cannabis only finally started doing, um, using psilocybin. And then in January of this year is when it's crazy to think that was only like in January yeah. that we did our first, it's so weird. So in, so yeah. we went, I know, isn't that a trip? Mm. Um, and so when I went in, did ayahuasca for the first time, that was really like the first intentional shamanistic setting that I had experienced um, a psychedelic. And then since then, psilocybin is a regular occurrence 
as well as cannabis has always been. So it's psilocybin and cannabis on a, you know, microdose basis for psilocybin and the cannabis as a daily. And then I went in October again and sat um, with our shamans uh, again and did ceremony, did Aya there again and Rape and then the drops. It was, drops. those ones were so much worse. This you time. go atomic? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. They said there was only one. So I was like, okay. Sonoga? Yes. Sonoga? Yeah. Dude. Whoa. That was a different experience from the first time we did them in January because the stronger ones made things a different animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the interesting thing about um, plant medicine and kind of that whole space is like, you know, I grew up like relatively religious. I grew up in a Christian household. I had to go to church like two to three times a week and all that stuff. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. No, dude, super. My father was a pastor growing up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like okay. Very much. Why don't you roll me? Why don't you roll me into what your parents are like here? Because I want to know how does how does one have a pastor for a father mm-hmm. and then and then do the ranger thing and then into psychedelics. I yeah. feel like your dad super loves your choices right now. Yeah, it's um, it's been interesting. Uh, so originally, like I said, originally from Hawaii and all growing up, we were very plugged into our local church there in Hilo, Hawaii, uh, Living Waters uh, Church. So if anybody's in Hilo, Hawaii, shout out. Um, but and my father's just a pastor. And like, it was just day-to-day life. I guess I didn't know anything else. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, it is what it was kind of thing. I didn't know anybody. All our friends were from the church. Um, I was very much in this religious bubble, which, you know, wasn't a bad thing. Good morals and generally put you on the straight and narrow path. Um, and I didn't know much about my parents' past beforehand, which is an always interesting thing as you get older, you get to learn more about your parents and what they were like. Um, moved to the Los Angeles area in California when I was 10 years old. And we were, my father was no longer a pastor there but we were still very involved in the church. You know, I had to go to church at least every Sunday, as well as like a Bible study. uh, Wow. So yeah. So I was there like two to three times a week. I was in some kind of religious service Um, and a relatively stable, general, like healthy family kind of thing. Obviously parents fight and there's always stuff going on, but more or less like a pretty stable background. Um, It wasn't that I joined the army and then everything else happened there. It was interesting that as I got older, oh, so right before I joined the army, my father and I had this massive uh, falling out. I was actually homeless for a little while. Uh, I lived behind a, yeah, I lived behind a construction site for like a week. Um, Dude. Yeah, it was one of those standard, you know, like shithead 18 year old things like, hey, my house, my rules, there's a door. It was like, okay, bye. Yeah, okay, bye. I'm out of here, dude. So I did that and then joined the army pretty much like, went from there then my buddy let me live with him so my buddy's apartment for like five months and then i left for the army pretty much um did my first deployment and all that then came home and you know my father and i were at ends very much at ends um and it took me going to war and going through all the things i went through over there to come back and you know 19 years old and my parents didn't really like me partying in high school or any of that stuff but nonetheless i was i'll describe myself as degenerate in high school you know like I smoked weed, I partied, I skated, I surfed, I snowboarded. I did like the Southern California kind of like shithead thing um, mm-hmm. and was just kind of trying to do all that stuff. So my father and I were always at wit's ends and we're always arguing and fighting. Um, it took me going through all that stuff in my first deployment and I came back and I was like, 
hey, sorry for being a shithead. And he imagine drinking a beer. He's like, glad you realized it. And it was kind of like called it there. But what's interesting is before my father was a pastor, he grew up in the Los Angeles area and he just kind of did the same thing. He didn't, my, my grandfather, very educated man, World War II, or I'm sorry, Korea War veteran um, for, for the American side, just clarify that. The, oh, I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad that you clarified yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it could go either way. Racist. Yeah, it could go either way. Oh, uh, man. American, American Korean War veteran. Um, and then he was like the mayor of Monterey Park and all this stuff. So relatively structured house, you know, as a principal of a school. So my dad was like, fuck it, I'm out of here too, man. I'm going to Hawaii to go surf. And he dipped out to go surf, met my mom, found religion, and then da, 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 had us. So like, it was interesting that, that like my father had this rebellious past. And, you know, I never knew about that until I began my rebellious past. And it took joining the military and doing all that stuff to kind of do that. So like, he kind of realized that he had to let me run my course kind of thing. He kind of saw what it was and was like, hey, man, like, I can't control this kid and he's got to do what he's got to do kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he kind of let me run off. Um, and I hit a lot of what I did in the military. And then I, I lost contact with my parents. Like, you know, I still every once in a while go home and call and all that stuff, but I'm more or less kind of like padded myself with the military. Like, this is my family. Now this is what I do. My family would understand. Like, I don't know how to come home and be like, so I fucking killed a dude, <laughs> you know, like by the yeah. way, yeah, like your baby boy. I'm the baby of my family. It's like, yeah, so it was cool. I saw a dude's face get blown off. That was rad. Right. Like I didn't know how to explain yeah. it to my parents. So I just never did. Um, and my family didn't really know I was in combat up until I got wounded. And then I called my dad from the hospital and was like, hey, heads up. Like I got hit with a hand grenade last night and the army's probably going to call soon. I'm going to get ahead of it and let you know that like I'm not dead and everything's fine. Yeah. Like don't um, panic. Yeah, like pretty much don't panic. Um, so then I, you know, then I got out, got into psychedelics. And it really wasn't until right about before I left for college that I told my parents, like, so by the way, like I was struggling with depression, I was struggling with PTSD. Um, and like I used heavy, heavy psychedelics to fix my shit. I did psychedelic therapy, I met with therapists, shamans, and everything. Um and now I'm a happy person. Now I can love, you know, now I have this right. empathy and can relate with people and all that stuff. And they were just kind of like, what the hell kind of thing? Cause they were just kind of getting over the fact that I was in combat and like the kind of combat I was doing in, in the intimacy of that combat. Um, so I kind of hit them all within like within six months to a year of like, so I deployed a lot. I went to war a lot like you know i was fortunate in, in fact that like you know most young men join special operations to go to combat and i saw a lot of combat or my fair share of combat and i was like and he kind of fucked me up but no it's cool i did psychedelics and they're just like what like what the hell is going on like, this is too much right now yeah, for me yeah. well but, i can um, understand it, that yeah you know so it was it was interesting to say the least well because you're i mean for your parents and your dad especially being a pastor what was his thoughts when you, obviously I'm sure he was shocked, number one, when he found out about the combat and the, the, the intimacy side of it. And that's being, you know, his son and his baby. I can only imagine I'm a mother. I understand that if Jack ever came to me, and was like, oh, hey, mom, guess what? I'd be like, oh God, no, yeah. no, because that's terrifying because I understand what that is. So what was that? Was there a whole, 
separate reaction to that versus, you know, just the psychedelics or, or was this an overall arching just confusion? Um, there's, there's like two different reactions So the combat and stuff. Again, I think my father knew that it was one of those, he's got to do what he's got to do and find his own path. So kind of let him do that. But the psychedelic stuff was very interesting. Um, because like, you know, in kind of Christian Christianity, like a lot of that, you know, like mother, I, uh, in the spirits and in that realm of things, um, it can be really looked at as demonic. Right. So he just wanted to make sure I was like, Hey, you're doing this stuff with entities. You're talking about a spirit coming down while you're in psychedelics and talking to you. He's like, you know, in the Bible, like Satan comes in many forms, you know, and a lot of them are appealing. So he's just like, uh, don't do the fuck. Like what, like, tell me more. Like I need more explanations on this kind of stuff. And once he realized that it was kind of helping me and it, it was what helped put me on the straight and narrow. It was like, this is what made me quote unquote healthy again. He was kind of more accepting of it. You know, it was very much like, I don't agree with it, but if it's helping you and if it's pointing you in the right direction and healing you up, then I don't really have a choice. Like I kind of like, he doesn't, you know, it's like, well, I forbid it. You know, if he goes like old school Asian parent and is like, I forbid this kind of thing, like, son, no, right? Like, <laughs> like that's only gonna, I'm still doing it, right? So they would just drive a wedge uh, between our relationships. So you kind of realize like, hey, this is my son, I love him. And if it's helping him, I'm for it. But he wanted to know why, you know, he wanted to know why, he wanted to know what I was trying to get out of it. He wanted to know everything about it. Cause you know, he grew up during the seventies and the sixties. So LSD and all that stuff was very prevalent during his time. And, you know, there could be an argument that it was abused during that time. Um, and they were just learning a lot about it. So, you know, fair, fair off to them. So he just wanted to know if I was safe and if I was going about it in the right way. And once mm-hmm. I kind of told him I was safe and I was going about it the right way. And, you know, when I did the, when I had my DMT experience and I began experience, um, I was hooked up to an EKG. I had IV leads inside of me and there was a 24 hour nurse uh, making sure that anything bad happened. There was someone there to make sure I was okay. So once he realized all that stuff, he was like, oh, okay, you're not just like going to the woods and eating mushrooms and running around naked. You're actually going about this in a very third. You're like only on Wednesdays. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like sometimes you got a part of the boys, but yeah, that's a Wednesday's activity. That's exactly. fine, dad. It's fine. Yeah. But you're, you know, you're doing it. You're very smart about it. I know after our, after our experience, you, you very quickly went and did another one not far after. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time did not understand the heaviness that was what you went and did until you called me and you kind of expressed to me what you just went through. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know if I want to touch that. I don't know if that's the right psychedelic for me. I think, I think there's certain psychedelics that are possibly better for certain types of trauma. You know, there's, there's so many nowadays, there's like K therapy, there's ayahuasca, psilocybin, ibogaine, you know, five MEO DMT, what else am I missing here? I know there's probably way more. Been, um, yeah. And those are like the big ones. Yeah, yeah. And I know there's another one. It's not a, a Cambo. There's, oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, my, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of other things. I'm, I'm thinking maybe the big, the big ones that come to mind are those for me, but I, I feel like there are certain things that they would be more specialized for. I know at least at what I've read, I began is more focused towards addiction or breaking, breaking a, a habit of some type. At least that's what I, I hear from other people's personal experiences. Um, 
I've never, I've never experienced it. Why do you felt like you needed um, psychedelics? Why did you feel like psychedelics would be the thing that worked for you? For me, it was kind of my last, my last hope, right? It was, it was kind of like, well, nothing else really is. Um, I was driving away relationships in my life. It wasn't really even like my closest friends, like people I, I loved dudes. I'd been in combat with for many years and, you know, I literally through my life, like we'd throw our lives on the line for each other and we've literally killed people for each other. Um, even them, I wasn't really letting in, you know, like they were there, they're my friends. I always had their back, but they weren't like in, you know? And I realized that I was like secluding myself and I wasn't allowing this love in my life. And it was getting to the point of being dangerous, you know, on, mm-hmm. I remember one time, like I was, I never say that I was suicidal, but one time I was, one time I sat on my rack, I dropped the mag out of my pistol. I cleared it. And I just wanted to know what it would feel like, you know, I like rack it, put it up, click, rack it, put it up, click, rack it. I was like, what's it feel like in my mouth, put it in my mouth, click. And I was like, Oh, like, that's all it takes. It just takes a few pounds of pressure. Right. Yeah. So I realized like, Oh shit, man. Like, like this is where I'm at after journaling, after meditating, after talking to a therapist and a counselor. Um, and you know, I was trying to tailor off the booze, um, but it wasn't really working, you know, and I needed a, I needed a something. I was kind of clawing at this point. Um, and- was there other things that you leaned on or tried? I know, I know, there's a handful of things that a lot of people when they're struggling with PTSD or PTS, you know, they, there's ways that that comes out, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, promiscuity, um, excess in spending, you know, just trying to feel anything. Do you feel mm-hmm. like you were numb? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Pretty much everything you just mentioned there, like the whole, the whole gambit. You did, you did I, hit all. The big, I hit the big five, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, they say about Rangers, like if you're going to go, you got to go hard. So I was like, well, if I'm doing like, you know, I'm just going to, I was, I call it living life, right? you know, um, a high impulse, low impulse control. I kind of did whatever I want, how I wanted, whenever I wanted. And I had a real lack for authority. Um, and I realized it was dangerous and it was not going well and nothing I was doing and trying to do was helping. Um, so that's what kind of led me down this path, which, which is interesting because um, once I, I held a, a DMT ceremony, like I helped facilitate a DMT ceremony for, for a lot of veterans in my area. And, you know, I told them all about it and why, and I was like, Hey, this is, this isn't just like doing drugs. You're not just psychedelicking out, man. Like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, there's, there's reason and intent and you got to be working on something in like, you don't necessarily have to have like PTSD or some crazy stuff, but like understand you're not just doing this for fun. And one of the things I told them, I was like, Something you also got to realize is once you kind of go down this path, you're on it forever. Like you, you can't close this door, right? Like you just bust and open a door into another world, another dimension, and it's never going to fully close. And what's interesting is as I was kind of like beating down my door initially, trying to like get into the psychedelic world is I didn't, I didn't realize that. And I just wanted to change. I just wanted to like something different to happen. But, you know, with Mother Aya and all the other things going on with the energies of the stuff is as you seek it out, they seek you out back, which I, you know, and I didn't realize that at the time, but as I was putting that energy out there, there's another energy kind of pulling me forward and leading me on this path 
And that, that, that's what brought me there to ayahuasca. And it ultimately changed my life. You know, like my first eye experience, um, I was terrified, literally, like, like, obviously I was terrified going into it. You're about to do the, like, potentially the world's strongest psychedelic. And all you hear is like, yeah, man, everybody just throws up and shit their pants. And you're like, Hey, just be glad you didn't throw yours up 20 minutes into the first ceremony. Okay. <laughs> Don't talk to me about being nervous, mister. I can at least hold war. it down. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. What's funny about that is for people who don't know, like generally speaking, it takes about 40 minutes, an hour for the medicine to start taking effect. Like, you know, until then you're just kind of laying down in meditation, just trying to like get into the zone. <laughs> like 20 minutes in, you're just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I was so mad at myself. I got enough. That was the night where it was like, I'm going to ease you in real, real slow to not terrify you. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's why I threw up. I can see it now. I can understand now. But I was so afraid going into ceremony the second time. So I was like, don't you do it again? Because you get so much anxiety. I could yeah. feel, you know, when you're so anxious. And you put something in your mouth, your mouth starts watering. You're like, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah. And then I just kept swallowing it. I kept swallowing and yeah. throwing it up and swallowing it. Oh. And Tim's mouth, Tim's face, every time I just swallowed my vomit was bad. Like, you guys hadn't even all drank yet. Yeah. Like, it was embarrassing. Yeah. It's fine. Weak link. Oh. It's Dude, mother, to be I expected, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I was terrified. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified. When I you didn't show it. Oh, yeah. So I'd done it once before before that ceremony. did you yeah with, with the same trauma and everything yeah yeah so like um i'd done it once before i think six months beforehand um okay. so that's that's what's crazy about that is like the dude you met then was like the dude on the more or less on the path and that's like there's always more work to be done you know what i mean because i was still pretty fucked up when when we met i said that to who did i say that to said that to Marcus Capone the other day, we were on the phone and I said, you know, that like, I know that we've done this before and we were doing the work, but this is like really work. Like, you know, you, people might have to, you know, expose themselves and experience psychedelics multiple times or on a, for me, I now know I need to go and connect at least twice a year. Mm -hmm. It's important to me and my spirituality and my place in this world. I feel I need that connection. It's important to me. And it helps, you know, level me out and heal enough that it's like, I can do the work. And then I go back in. It's like doing like a really aggressive therapy all in one setting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I once heard like, uh, one session or like one thing of ayahuasca is equivalent to like doing like five years of therapy or something. Cause it just hits so hard and so fast. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified. I like I felt the truest form of fear that I've ever felt in my life and the truest form of anxiety that I ever felt in my life the first night. And it, I felt sick. I just felt sick in this heavy, wet lead blanket was on top of my soul. And I was just sitting there groggy and I couldn't throw up and I couldn't get this evil out of me, you know, and talking to the shaman the next day about it. And he was just like, yeah, dude, like that's emotion right? Like you're not allowing yourself to feel fear and you weren't allowing yourself to feel anxiety. So that's a decade of fear and anxiety um, kind of coming out at one time. And I was like, oh my God, because for eight and a half hours, I was like, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I was like borderline weeping. Um, and as we got ready for the second night, he's like, are you ready to go? Like, he's like, hey, do you mm -hmm. want to come? Do you want to do the second night? I was like, 
ooh, ooh, like, I don't know, man. I was like, if we're doing what happened last night again, like, I don't yeah. know if I'm ready for this. Like, I am fucking terrified right now. Um, he's like, hey, it's your journey. You do what you want. And I was like, you know what? I wanted to meet the devil. Like, I, there's, a, there's some bad shit inside of me. I'm going to stare the devil in the eye. Like, we're going back in. Went in, and then the second night was the exact opposite. Well, the first night was fear and anxiety. The second night was love, just love and joy. Um, and that deep rooted in the, in the bottom of my gut, fear and anxiety was replaced with the truest form of love and joy I've ever felt. And I, that was like one of the first times in 10 years that I voluntarily cried, you know, where I wasn't just like blackout drunk on the floor, like, like screaming some dead buddies names or something. Like I was actually just like weeping out of joy. And I was like, you know, I'm sitting there like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and, you know? um, and, it, and it all came out. And that, that really began um, my path to like love, to self-love, to loving other people and empathy in being able to open up and allow myself to be loved and to truly love others without fear. You know, It's so beautiful to hear you talk about life now because I've heard you talk about the way you were. I didn't know you then. I feel like I get a, a good idea of who you were then and what that looks like just based around being around enough people who have seen some stuff, right? You, there's a look to people, the way they move, the way they shift, how they talk. And body language is everything. And um, like you said, I, I didn't know that you had done it before that. But, you know, I would have thought it was your first time. You were, you know, you were still you know, kind of an anxious energy was a different thing. Right. And I could feel it and you'd be eating and your foot would tap, 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 tap. And I was like, okay, so there's other people like me who are tap, tap, tapping away. And that's normal. And when you see you kind of the, the amount of change that has happened already in like the short period of time that we've known each other to see the calm kind of come over you and and the confidence I think you always have, but I think you have it for a different reasoning now. I think it's not, I'm a ranger. I'm fucking awesome and really, really, really violent. It's a, an effective. It's a, I'm, I'm a gay. I'm this guy who just wants to help people understand that they don't have to feel like that for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was funny. It's like, that's what kind of, I wouldn't say led me to Harvard by any means. Uh, for the record, I didn't even know I could get in here. Just took my shot. And, You're Asian. You know, for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I'm Asian. Oh, Worked out. I think, yeah, we always, me and my, we have a Marine buddy here. We always joke around that we're the, uh, we're the diversity hires. <laughs> like, yeah, he's Asian, but not like that kind of Asian. He's like a veteran Asian with tattoos and kind of bro different. Yeah, like count. He has a comb over. It's fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, but that's one of the things that led me to like, my study, like I'm, I'm a neuroscience guy here. Um, I mean, it was actually on a psilocybin journey. I was meditating and I was like, what do I want to do with this? I have a, I have a shot at the best university arguably in the world uh, and to some of the best resources in the world. So what, uh, what am I going to do with this? You know, am right. I going to piss down the drain? Am I going to, you know, I could, you know, do the normal business school kind of special operations, hire me for business. I'm a consultant and private equity guy, I think. But it didn't sit well with me, you know, it, it, it sat, it was, it wasn't serving in, in the sense that like I wanted to serve. I guess you could say that in a way you can make a lot of money, then you can give all that money to like charity and, and you're, you're helping a greater good and making a great impact that way. But it wasn't 
serving a greater good in the sense that I wanted to do and I didn't know what I wanted to do with that greater good. You know, I, I just knew I wanted to help people. And I wanted to help a lot of people and I knew I wanted to make an impact. I didn't know how. So, you know, as we do, I went into uh, psilocybin meditation <laughs> and I had a amazing, amazing journey. And through that journey, I had a lot of a lot of questions were answered and I kept revolving around this fact of like, how do I help people? How do I go about making a great difference for the betterment of my community, for the better of, you know, humans around me and all, and all that stuff. And I kind of had one of those moments where I'm laying on my back in meditation. I just kind of sprang up and I was like, neuroscience, fucking neuroscience. And I didn't know what that yeah, meant. The brain. At the time. Yeah. Right. I just knew I needed to study the brain. I didn't really know what that meant. So then I started poking around and just kind of pulling on that string a little bit. And I realized that what I want to do with neuroscience is research psychedelics and, and how psychedelics help treat depression and PTSD from TBIs. And not only within the veteran community, right? Like that's when you say those words like depression, PTSD, and traumatic brain injury, you generally think, oh, veteran kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of us do have that or have experienced those things, but everybody, like generally most people have experienced one of those three things, if not a combination of all of them somehow. So if we can like really put the research in and put the legwork now, because I think society is changing to the fact that we're a little more open to the idea of psychedelics and actually using psychedelics as a form of medicine. And I mean, like, look, look what's happening in uh, Oregon where they're decriminalizing that stuff. And, you know, psilocybin research centers are kind of popping up. Ketamine research centers or, or therape therapeutic places are popping up. So I was like, well, I would like to get in that. I want to do the research and actually bring that forward. And, why I think I bring an interesting dynamic to that is being within the special operations community or former of, there's a lot of machismo, a lot of ego. If, you know, go figure, right? No one would have thought there's a lot of machismo and ego within special operations. What the interesting thing about it is we always want the coolest, the most cutting edge, the smartest stuff, but at the mm -hmm. same time, like we're tough, right? I mean, there's, there's guys I know that have had broken ankles and, you know, hiked 15 miles with 80 pounds on their back or, you know, dudes are wounded and push it on or all kinds of shit. I had a buddy who, when we got wounded, he took shrapnel in his hand, hand was broken. Then he played Lithuania two days later for Team USA Hockey with a broken hand and shrapnel in his leg. Um, so like these dudes are fucking animals. So when you tell them like, hey man, like you have a brain injury. You're like, I don't have a fucking brain injury, bro. You're like, no. <laughs> No, you do. You do have a brain injury. Like I've never been hit in the brain once, you know, so, for context, I have a buddy who got shot in the fucking head, right? Like he got shot in the head. It hit his helmet and shattered his nods and he knocked back, got back up and got back in the fight. You know what but I mean? I've never been hit in the head. I've never been hit in the head. He's like, nah, dude, I'm good. I just drank like some beers after and I wasn't a pussy. And you're like, yeah, you were shot in the fucking face. But you got shot in the fucking face by a seven six two by three nine round, buddy. Like you, you might have a small concussion, you know. <laughs> so shit like that, right? Or I have a buddy who got shot in the fucking neck, you know, and like he's fine. I mean, for the record, he's alive. But like, it hit his spine, fucked his shit up, and he had some nerve damage. But I guarantee you, he has brain damage. Like, there's no way he doesn't have brain damage. Yeah. Right. So these guys are like, oh man, I'm good. I'm tough. I'm a fucking ranger. And you're like, yeah, you are all those things. But then when like some nerdy scientist dude or somebody from outside the community who hasn't, doesn't know these people brings it up and like, Hey, here's some research that says you guys' brains are all fucked up. They're like, nah, dude, you're just a bitch. You don't get it. 
right? And then obviously there, there's obviously an exception where people will bring that in. And there has been people who try to bring that into our community, but they don't have the validity, you know, they don't have like the background to bring that in. And I think that's where I have an interesting approach to this is I do have that background, right? Like I said, I, I wasn't the fucking Terminator or anything, but I was out there, I was with the guys, I did the thing. So I can bring in the side of like, hey guys, I get it. I was within the community. I did the job and all this. I also did the psychedelics and I have my own anecdotal evidence and I have a neuroscience degree from fucking Harvard. Yeah, <laughs> so, so like, suck it. I'm smart. Yeah, so Listen like I can me. bring these things in, I think, or I hope into the community with some validity, right? And be like, all right, boys, I get it. You're bad, you're tough. You're the hardest dudes on the planet, what have you. But this is actual science and this isn't yeah. done from like some weird pharmaceutical company. This isn't done for profit. This is like, I care about you idiots. And I don't want you guys committing suicide anymore. I don't want you guys drowning yourselves in alcohol and doing all this crazy shit and like build out a no shit pathway to healing, mm-hmm. to destigmatize psychedelics and like, hey, this will help you. This is, there's science behind this that says this is okay. And like, you can do these things. And there's a normalize, like to normalize being sad from normalized depression because that's a huge hit in ego when when you're sad and there's nothing to do about then you're lonely you know i mean like bishop called me one day uh he's like hey man just checking in how you doing i was like oh i'm, I'm good man I'm, I'm doing good he's like no nah, fuck that ranger i'm good bullshit he's like how the fuck are you he's like don't be a pussy talk to me how the fuck are you you know and i was like oh i'm kind of lonely <laughs> you know? i was like oh, man like i'm, I'm kind of lonely right now like I wish I, you know, like I need someone to talk to. And then, you know, we had a, we had a good conversation, um, but it's always there. It's always in the forefront where it's like, you gotta, you gotta put that, that tough guy that I'm a special ops guy face forward and nothing phases me. Um, so, you, you know, and there's time and place for that, you know, when you're in a leadership position or, you know, if you're on an op or something like that happens, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. But when you're back in the rear, when you're trying to be better, when you're trying to be an effective leader, like you gotta be able to have some of that vulnerability you know, to be like, Hey man, like I need someone to talk to, you know, like I need help. Um, and I, I'd like to kind of bring that to the community and then ultimately to everybody else who experiences these things. Cause this isn't just to us. This isn't just, just to veterans. Everybody's experiencing stuff to some, to some point. Well, that's it. And that's why I think it's so unique is it's applicable to such a large population. This doesn't have to be just studied because let's be honest for a second. If this was only effective medicine for veterans, the research would, and the finances behind it wouldn't be there. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not a polarizing community to people where they stop and go, we need to help these people. We're kind of the afterthought, especially now that the war is over or the war is, we're no longer there. The war Mm -hmm. isn't in my, you know, I don't know that that's ever going to be a a place where war isn't going to exist, but we're not currently there any longer. And so the community is more of an afterthought now, especially because we're not losing people on deployment. It's not in the media. It's not, you know, so the, the idea that there is still a large subset of the population that is struggling because of that war, I don't know that the finances would be there to, to study it, but because depression, because anxiety, because traumatic brain injury, anyone can have it. It mm-hmm. can happen from growing up in an abusive home. It can happen from being a professional athlete. It can happen from, from hitting your head too much, causing CTE, which leads to depression and everything else that goes along with it. 
you know, it it's applicable across the board. And it's sad to say that it is, but depression is is spiking things like general anxiety and social anxiety are spiking. You know, the suicide rates are spiking. There's a need, a genuine need to fix these problems. And we need something that isn't listen, pharmaceuticals fix some things they, they Mm -hmm. do. Don't get me wrong. They, if, if it's necessary at the time, then it's necessary at the time. I don't think they're a long-term solution to problems unless you're talking about things like schizophrenia, bipolar, things that really do need a chemical intervention to allow that human being to be, um, what do they say? Um, Productive in society is what they say to a veteran when they're getting it. We need to see what can make you a productive part of society, right? How do we retrain you to be a productive part of society? It was exactly how it's worded to me before. Um, So, you know, there is a need for it. Don't get me wrong. They're not all the devil. Most of them are. And we know that physical fitness, when integrated with depression, has a four times more effective rate than an SSRI in, in a normal standard. If you're, if you're looking at a normal human being who's suffering from depression. So again, not schizophrenic, not bipolar, not you know, manic depressive, things like that. But we do know that it works. We do know that physical fitness is the key, one of the key elements to having somebody succeed with depression. Um, At least that is something my doctor has made very aware to me in the past 10 years of being in therapy and treatment. Physical fitness is key. And if we are not having our patients, he's, this is him saying, having our patients and our, and our clients, you know, working on physical fitness, that's a huge component we're not looking at. And now I truly believe that psychedelics are a whole other component that we can look at and explore in a really in-depth way. And there is a large population that is hungry for relief, is, is, is starving for hope. And I feel like psychedelics have, have given that or are starting to give that. And you doing the research and having the opportunity to be at a, such an elite school and to be able to take that and move it, move psychedelics forward, but not just for civilian population, but from a unique perspective, because you've been there, it's going to be game changing, I believe. Hopefully. Yeah, I really, I really hope so. And really the goal is just to change the social stigma, like coming from a place like this, if I am able to change the narrative on that, like who knows what can happen? You know, I mean, obviously there's like Joe Rogan and stuff, who's pushing all this stuff super hard. Um, but, you know, coming from a place like this, like this is one of the most known institutions of education, like on the planet, you know? Right. And then if I can do some research here that really proves this point that like, hey, this stuff is good. Like this stuff is within limits and not abusive without, without abusing the substances. Like there's real change for society here. I think it can really do a lot of good in the world. You know, you know well, I'm I think- excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. I mean, I know Griff tells us, uh, you know, when we first meet and stuff, he's like, listen, you're going to be the vet with the billboard. Don't do it. And I'm like, I'm going to be it and I'm doing it. And I don't care because I, I think there's so much promise. Mm-hmm. I think people, after I've done a few shows, the amount of outpouring of like, hey, what's that? What's that thing you were talking about? I love when people type out ayahuasca for the first time and oh, they send you oh a message. Gosh. Yeah. 
it's the best because it's nowhere close. But they're like, that's how, you know, they, they, their computer won't even auto generate it for them because they've never typed that word a day in their life. And I had never, I knew about ayahuasca very briefly before Griff invited me. So, you know, I understood that it was this really strong psychedelic and all of this. And that was really intimidating. So to see research going into it and have so many people from the community kind of going, Hey, look, it's intimidating for sure. But the end goal and the result is game changing. It's everything. It's everything. Yeah. It's like, it's funny going into it. Like ayahuasca, even like DMT, like I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified when the DMT, it's like, by no means do I say like I'm a hardened combat veteran, right? But I've been in combat and I've, you know, I've been in one or two firefights in my life and I'm fairly confident in my gunfighting ability, you know, like I'm pretty confident in that stuff. And going into the DMT, I was like, holy shit, like what? Like I, there's nothing, no amount of tactics, no amount of gunfighting, nothing I can do in this world, in this realm of whatever I'm about to do will prepare me for this. You know, I, I just raw dog the spirit dimension more or less and like it was absolutely terrifying you know and my, my yeah it's like my first journey like it, it's what i really believe broke me through the glass ceiling what i really believe did the most change like ayahuasca i think was necessary to open me up it cracked me open ayahuasca really allowed me to like begin to love and all that stuff but DMT, like 5-MeO DMT, like it, it's, it changed my, I mean, ayahuasca changed my life, but it changed my life. It changed my perspective. It changed my energy. It changed how I like look at people for the positive. Um, it was, I did, I did like about six sessions or six hits back to back. So, you know, you do a hit, you go down, you come back up. It's like 15 minutes per. And I don't remember exactly when or where, this stuff kind of happened because all kind of blended together but i just kept getting brought up to this ledge this like this ledge this cliff like a veil of sorts and every time i'd like get catapulted in the spirit world and brought up to this ledge something kept saying like you got to jump you got to push through you you got to you got to bust through this if you want to change you have to do this and i was terrified right because I, I was sitting there and i was like well i have a loving girlfriend i'm honestly i'm like i'm potentially going, like, I'm going to Harvard. I was like, and I'm trying to be an astronaut, right? Like, who knows if that's going to happen, you know, but like, I'm trying to do this thing and I'm on a very good path, right? And I was like, what if I jump off this cliff and push through this veil and I come back and I just want to go be a shaman in Peru? You know, it's like, what are like, like, what, like, if I, what if everything changes? Because it was telling me that everything's going to change. Like everything's going to be different once you bust through this. So like bust through or don't, but bust through this. And I was like, oh my God, I'm scared. So every, every hit, every time I went back into it, it shot me right up to that ledge every single time. And I was sitting there like, oh my God, like, I don't know what to do. And then finally I was like, you know what? No, no. Like I'm here for a reason. Like I'm, I made the trek down to Mexico. I did all this stuff. I, I did everything I needed to do. Like is, everything is leading to this point. Like, I'm here because I want to change and I wouldn't be at this point in this journey if I wasn't ready to change. And I was like, well, I got to trust the medicine. So I jumped, like I jumped, I pushed through the veil, did all that. And when I was in the DMT world, I didn't like, you know, you hear all these stories and all this crazy stuff, elves. It was a lot of 
black and a lot of um, sacred geometry. So a lot of like blue lines and lights and things were shooting all over the place and it looked like a kaleidoscope of lights just blowing by me all the time. There was just energy everywhere. And when I broke through that veil, it was blinding white. I didn't die. Like, I don't, I don't think I died, uh, but like, I, I didn't die per se, but I wasn't in this world anymore. And I wouldn't say I was in heaven, but I was in whatever is after this. And mm-hmm. I was in this space of uh, all consuming white light. And when I was there, like, you know, call it God, call it what have you, but there's universal energy, like whatever life is was there with me and we were in this space together. And when I was in that space, that white light filled me with love. It filled me with joy and happiness. And the biggest thing was peace. Like it filled me with peace. And, you know, I was, I came down from that. As I came down from that, um, I like, <laughs> this is where it gets weird. I felt my body regrowing into my own body. Like I felt like fingers growing into my fingers and like my arms kind of growing out. And I was kind of writhing on the floor and stretching it out. And I was, I was letting out all that tension. Um, for people who, who don't really understand that point, there's a book called The Body Keeps a Score. And it talks about how um, your body man- manifests like emotional trauma or emotional stress within yourself. And uh, you, you can like stretch it out and work out and all that stuff. So I highly recommend that read. But I was, it was like stretching out all that, all that angst and all that tra- I came to and was, was in my own self again. Um, I sat up and I was weeping and I, I looked at the practitioner next to me and I was like, what do I do? Like, I was like, I just, I was like, I think, I, I think verbatim, I, I, I hate that I'm at this school and I still say shit like this. And I was like, bro, I think I'm at fucking God. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, oh man, I, I would hope that at some point my vocabulary changes, but I just remember looking at this game, like, bro, I think fucking God, you know, I'm like, nobody we, wants you to change. Nobody <laughs> wants you to change. <laughs> and I was like, I think I was like, I just think I found out like, like the secret of life. Like, what do I do with this? You know? And he's like, well, what's the secret to you? I was like, to love. Like, I think the secret of life is to love and love like as fully as you can. And he just smiled and was like, now you live, now you live and you love as hard as you can. And I was like, Oh shit. And I just sat there and he brought me a bowl of fruit and I was just sitting cross legged in this like beautiful, beautiful view of Mex- the Mexico, um, Mexican coastline. And I was weeping and it was like, so for the record, the guy I was with was an ex uh, team six dude. So old school SEAL team six guy. So, you know, he's, he's done a thing or two in his day as well. Watch a lot of YouTube, you know? And uh, I was just sitting there and I was like, Hey, can I tell you something? And he's like, yeah, please. And I was like, I can feel the fear of every guy I've ever killed right before I killed him. Like I could feel that moment where they knew they were going to die. You know, like Mm -hmm. whether I had that dude in my sights, whether I was through a grenade and he heard that grenade, like what have you. And however I killed that guy. And especially the last dude I killed my pistol and his buddy. um, I could feel the fear that they knew that it was the end, that there's nothing they could do about it. That like, Hey, you know, I say they couldn't see me. It's always at night. But like, this dude's going to kill me. Like, this is the end of my life. And mm-hmm. the fear that they felt, and it was consuming. You know, it overwhelmed me. And I was just weeping and sobbing. And it wasn't that I felt bad for them. Or like, I felt bad for killing them, I should say. Um, it, it brought back the empathy. 
that empathy that I lost, that, you know, I kind of did the whole full circle, like it's a circle. I did the whole full circle thing. And I, I like saw them as humans again. I saw them as people who lived, who loved, who had families, who, you know, via whatever circumstance were in the boat that they were in. I mean, some people are just evil, right? Like obviously there's like very evil people in the world. And, you know, you like to think that they started off as just babies and then something, a lot of bad shit happened that they didn't have control over. Maybe they did, but whatever, a lot of bad shit happened and became evil. But nonetheless, like they were just, these dudes that I killed were just people, you know? And I don't know the story of their life and the context of it, but for all I know, I could have been the world's reversed. Maybe if I was born in some shit village in Afghanistan and they were born in America, like they'd be a ranger and I'd be a Taliban fighter. Like who knows, right? right. But I can't, like, I couldn't put that hate on them anymore. And I realized then it's like, I don't ever want to go out of my way to kill someone again. Like, I don't ever want to be an aggressor. Um, you know, I still believe in self-defense and fuck around and find out, but uh, like, you know, don't, you know, don't tread on me. Just um, don't, just don't. Yeah, yeah. But I never want to be the guy that has to, I never want to be an aggressor and, and chase someone down and kill them again because yeah. of, of, I could feel the fear. And I was like, holy cow. Like who, who knows what this person's story is. And, you know, I don't know the context of it. It's incredible to me to see that you are able to have, you're able to look back and understand when that moment and why that moment happened, when that empathy was lost and you're able to, to use something that is so stigmatized, regardless of the repercussions to you because you know that that's not okay to live that way. You understand that the way that you felt then when that light switch went off or when, you know, you took that first life, you understood that that's not a way that you want to live. And what's really great to me to see is that you understand that you're worth not having to live like that. And so many vets don't understand that it, it's almost like punishment. Like they, like they think they deserve, mm -hmm. they should be living like that. No, I deserve to live like this. Cause I've done some heinous shit. Right. No. No. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like our, our community is almost self-masochistic, you know, in, in that sense of like, I think there's a lot of like stoicism in it. Like this is the warrior's burden kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And they think they have to bear that weight. And it's like, hey man, like you don't, you don't have to, you know, it's, it's a thing you did. It's not who you are. It doesn't define you. You know, like you can go on to write another story. You can go on to live another life and redefine yourself. Like you're not, this veteran you're not some killer you know maybe maybe at some point you were maybe that's what you did because you were in war but like that doesn't have to be who you are and you have the ability to redefine yourself and rewrite who you are and live an entirely different life uh one you know to be even more proud of you know it's interesting like um when i started this journey i was talking to griff and he was really we had some really interesting conversations back then he goes like hey man like being a ranger is something you did. It's not who you are. You know, it's like you can always redefine yourself. And he, one, of the, one of the interesting things he said about that was, he's like, be careful about what you say about your time as a ranger. And I was like, well, I was like, what do you, you know, like, what do you mean, bro? Like, what do you like, you got a problem yeah. with fucking ranger, dude? And he was just like, no, 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 not at all. He's like, when you say that, like, when you look back at it and be like, oh man, those were the best times, you know, like that means you're saying that, like, that's it, you peaked you peaked at 25, 26, 27 years old. You know, you're going to live to probably be 80, you know, God willing. So it's like, do you want to look back at the first quarter of your life and think you peaked? 
It's like, no, redefine yourself. Keep peaking. He's like, you can always peak again. You can always be better and you can always strive for something greater and to help more people and live a loving life. So like, you know, enjoy it, cherish it, love what happened, love the people that you're with and, and know that's what helps make you who you are. But that's not it, man. And I was, you know, at the time, I'm like fresh out of the army. I'm sitting there like rangering is all I know, like being in the military is everything. And I'm like, who's this fucking hippie dude that sells flip-flops? <laughs> you know, like- Who's this guy? Yeah, I was like, what the shit, man? You know? I, um, I can that, totally yeah. see, I can totally see him like, as we all age, he's going to just start wearing his white man jams all the time. <laughs> and he's going to be puttering with his roses around yeah. a yurt. And he's going to have long hair and the beard. And he's going to be like, that's, that's just Griff. Yeah, that's, that's just Griff. Don't mind him. Don't mind don't that. Mind him. Yeah, I know. Was... But it's true, though, to have somebody like that speak to you right off the bat as soon as you got out about this stuff. And I only wish that, you know, this was more of a conversation back when I got out and back when like, you know, there's so many people, excuse me, that use, you know, that use pharmaceutical medication because it was the only solution or was told, they were told this is what they need to have. And um, I'm just happy to see progress, right? I'm happy to see big schools like yours um, that you're attending, like see it for what it is, see past the, the bullshit agenda that's attached to all people who do psychedelics or all drug using hippies or they abuse it like to for there's major schools taking notice and doing research now. And that is always the start the, of the turning point when when you get a major school to acknowledge that this should be researched mm-hmm. for them to put money and funding into it. You know, all those rich people, they donate a lot of money, but I bet you a lot of those people don't appreciate psychedelics being studied on their dime. So yeah. for them to go out of their way to do that, I'm happy. I'm it's it's progression. And that is, is incredible to me for you. What is the, the, I guess the, the goal is neuroscience, but what do you see? What do you see for the next story? The next chapter of a gay? Cause I know you yeah. have a love of your life now. Yeah. Um, I'd say like the overarching thing is the love. Right. Um, but as far as like career and, and all that stuff goes, the goal is that we're going go NASA, right? Like I, I wanted, I, my childhood dream was to be an astronaut. So just going to so take the shot. SpaceX, bro. Yeah. Right. Like who knows, right? Like I just want to go to space and adventure. Um, which is interesting about that is I think the last time we talked, I had said like, I wanted to try and do it via the fighter pilot route. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's funny. It's one of the things I helped prompt the, like, you know, this conversation, and everything was, I kind of diverted from that uh, from like potentially you join the military and, and become a fighter pilot again. And you know, how I say it helped spark this conversation was because it couldn't really be known that I was doing psychedelics and all these other things, uh, to get the clearances needed to be right. like a fighter pilot and rejoin the military. So I kind of wanted to pull away from that. And I, I looked at it and like, I, I was weighing it. Like, do I want to re-enter the military? Is that a place for me with where I'm at in life now? And I was like, I don't think so. And, you know, if it is, maybe I'll try after, after uh, college and just kind of see what happens if I get in or don't get in, but I don't think I will. But what I'm really juggling with now is uh, going the pre-med route and trying to get my doctorate in neuroscience. Oh, um, shit goal. Yeah. So okay. we'll see what happens, right? I'm still juggling with it and, and trying to see where that goes, but get my doctorate and then apply for NASA and then go try and be an astronaut 
And if that doesn't yeah. work out, then, you know, we'll then have a, a doctorate of neuroscience from Harvard and, uh, or you know, at least an undergrad of neuroscience from Harvard. And who knows where I do my doctorate at. Some other but, ridiculous school, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll be all right and still be able to pursue the research I want to pursue, you know, during that time. Wow. So it happens, you know, it's, it's an interesting time to be alive and, uh, in medicine, in space, in, in so many different um, categories now, technology is moving at such a pace and to be, to be able to bear witness, but only to see my friends actually getting to go do this stuff. Like you go to space again, I want the first bracelet with a bullet in space. I, I, that old thing, dude, I know you're going to get there. You. You're going to get there. You know that, right? Like, you know, in like 10 years from now, we're going to be like, hey, so you remember how I was going to be like a doctor? Well, I'm just going to go get on the shuttle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like real quick. I'm just yeah. doing a quick stint. Yes, Elon shooting me up. Yeah. You can watch. Don't even worry about it. It's going to mm-hmm. happen. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of things can happen between now and then. But the way I see it is if you, if you keep just living a life of love and just trying to pursue being a good person and, and doing fun stuff you're gonna end up somewhere decent you know i mean it ended up, it ended up, i'm on a podcast with one of my best friends you know i mean like i didn't think this would be happen in my life Dude, um i i don't know this this psychedelics have opened the door for it feels like everybody they touch 100 and it's 100%. it's such like a special thing to get to bear witness to seeing friends succeed after and knowing their past and, and see them progress and be healthy and just brilliant examples. But, you know, just to see, just to see people healing and not hurting. That's a big one, right? It's like, whatever you can do to help the people around you and just like make a positive impact. It's, right. It's, you know, like your company, all the other companies you're, you're associated with, it's like, they're all just helping people. They're just trying to do good things and push the envelope forward on like, what good can they do for everyone around them? And it's awesome. It's just awesome to watch and be a part of, and, you know, pretty much just riding y'all's coat, coat, uh, coattails. Coattails? Oh, yeah. please. You're yeah, right in my front pocket. I got oh, you. Yeah, you made me blush now. I got um, you. Don't you worry about it. You're, you're going along with all of us. And you know that, I mean, listen, you're going to be the guy that's going to legitimize all of us going to hang out on a weekend and do yoga in a year, like you're going to legitimize why that is important for our schedules to be a part of our lives. So I'm fine with that. I, we all need the intelligent friend. You just happen to be the Asian one too. I mean, you did it to yourself, I'm not, man. I'm not saying I'm trying to fit a stereotype, but you know, that button up comb over says something different, oh, my friend. I know. Oof. If you're not watching this and you're only listening, do yourself a favor and go watch the YouTube episode because you're clearly missing out. And you know, what's really ironic. Okay. So I'll tell a quick story about, I, so I came up with this nickname for a gay when we were on the weekend, we were doing Aya and he was working out a bunch and everyone else was like, just, we're all like just hanging out, trying to survive. And he was like over there lifting weights. And, um, I remember saying, I was like, this guy's like, He's like the beefcakes of everyone. He's got to be swole in like the corner in the mirror, just, whoa, just beefing it up. And I remember saying, I was like, dude, I'm going to start calling you beefcakes. And you're like, why did you like say that? And I'm like trying to explain why. And you're like, no, let me show you why. And you have a tattoo 
that says beefcakes on your body. And that was too much for me to handle when you showed it to me. (laughs) That couldn't have been more ironic timing. That that was perfect. Do you want me to show it? Is that that allowed? uh, yeah, show, please show the beefcakes because people are going to be like, no, you're full of shit. I'm like, no, he's got a beefcake tattoo on his yeah, body. It's, it's like, it's literally right there and it says beefcakes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it was a, I was a younger man in those days. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. It's like my, uh, my other buddy, Trent Miller, he has a similar tattoo with a muffin flexing his arms and it says stud muffin. I know? mean, so him and our beefcake and stud muffin. And uh, it was when I was running through those five, you know, right. the, the, the big five. That's it was right. an interesting time in my life. That's okay. It's a good time in your life. You can look yeah. back yeah. on it and remember. It. It's like they're, they're <laughs> symbols of memories. Um, so what I want to ask you next really is kind of a little more personal. And besides psychedelics, when you're, because you are in, a program that is very intense, um, mentally draining. It does come with a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And I know you play competitive rugby for Harvard. I know you have a lot on your plate. You juggle a lot. How and what are you doing to manage this level of stress and, and everything that comes along with the pressure? Oh yeah. Uh, meditation and journaling have been, have been it. I also microdose, uh, microdosing has, I microdose psilocybin. And that, that trio right there has been the tripod that's kind of keeping this shit show afloat. You know what I mean? It's been a shit show afloat. <laughs> yeah. It's been a, it's been a decade plus. I graduated high school in 2010. And so it's been almost 11 years since I was in any kind of like real academic setting. Um, and those last two years of high school, I wasn't really in math or science and I barely even did any English. So really almost since 2008 was the last time I did any like hardcore uh, like academia, and I didn't do well there either. I, don't, I graduated high school with a 1.8 GPA, right? So, and look, look at me now. Um, <laughs> look at me now, mom. <laughs> now, mom, you know, the Asian thing pulled off, but, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's been uh, like intentional, intentional journaling, intentional meditation daily, and microdosing has really helped keep those things afloat and really help me progress and, and keep, keep everything going. Also, another thing for veterans, I got to get, I kind of got to give a shout out on this is get your hormone levels checked. Um, I'm on a hormone replacement therapy as well. Testosterone. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a big thing that, yeah. Like, like those, whatever wave tops were getting a little crazy after, you know, my Aya and DMT and all those things has really helped me internally with my emotions and all that stuff. But my day-to-day was still a little bit different, like still re- like the high impulse, low impulse control, like those margins of error have dropped drastically, but it was still there. You know, I still had like small bouts of depression, but now I have the tools um, to deal with it. You know, I had journaling, I had uh, meditation, I have you guys, and I had the context to look back from my psychedelic experiences and, and the things, the lessons I learned from that. And I could help mitigate and steer, steer those waters. But once I got into uh, hormone replacement therapy, it made me feel normal again. It made me feel like, like back before I joined the military. Like I was really mm-hmm. in control of myself. And that, that also helped a lot as well. Um, with, with the hormones, that's attributed to 
because I know, I know a lot of, I hear about this very often, especially in the community, combat veterans who have been exposed to um, trauma, CTE, things like that. There's, there's something that coincides with lower testosterone. And I, and I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but that seems to be a direct correlation. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what I know about it and what was explained to me by the doctors was from traumatic brain injuries, CTEs, and like you said, just like hazardous gases and also like burnout, like just the tons and tons of burnout from the job in over time and over years, it really, you know, forgive my lack of scientific knowledge really fucks your shit up. You know, like, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it in a more articulate way than that, but it, it like, it doesn't, it messes with everything. You know, um, when I got my blood levels back, like I had low testosterone, I had low free testosterone, my cortisol levels were off, like everything was off, like nothing was where it should have been. And, um, you know, I was just like, how was I a functioning human as well? You know, like, how did I right. feel balanced? Right. And which cracks me up is like, if I had that messed up hormones, and I hadn't done any like psychedelic therapy, like who, like, I'd just be a terrorist, dude. I'd just be a, a menace to society. You know, I was like, holy cow. And it, what's funny okay. is like, I was like the giddy happy ranger. You know, I was like, I was cracking jokes all the time. Like I was at this, I went to this joint Marine Corps special operations course and they called me giggle ranger because like, you oh. know, I was laughing and having a good time and all that stuff. So I'm like the happy go lucky lighthearted guy. And I was still going through all the shit. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's so many more hardcore dudes out there. That's like, you guys, they like, they got to get checked. They got to get their hormone levels checked. They got to get their brains checked. They got to do these things because like, it is going to mess you up in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you brought that up. It's really important because a lot of people don't understand how important levels are and when your blood is off. And I know there's this really great um, online platform, you just go get a, a requisition from your doctor, say, I want to get my blood levels checked. And then there's this system, you upload it, it's called inside tracker, and you can upload it, your blood results right on there. And it shows you exactly where your levels are and how to fix them via food or vitamins and how to make the change. And then you retest again in three months. And so we do it, Brady and I do it every six months, sometimes a little bit earlier, if we're feeling off just to see where we're at. And it's amazing what you learn and you're like, Oh, okay. That's why I feel like this. Oh, yeah. it's not like, I can't think my way out of this. This is a chemical imbalance. And so I'm so glad that you, you brought that up. It's so important for people to understand that, that, you know, you got to be eating the right food or taking the right vitamins or being movement is key, key, key. Oh, absolutely. And drinking water. Oh God. How many, I have so many people I know that drink double digits in soda a day. And I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, oh that's poison to the body. Yeah. Poison to the body. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's things that can be done and mitigated. There's things that you can use to help yourself if you just seek out the advice. Right. And, um, I'm glad to hear that you you've done those things and, you know, more than just talk there because sometimes it takes a little bit more. Right. And, and that's okay. We, we, we need a, what is that thing? A multi-prong approach sometimes. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I literally don't know all the cool words or, or abbreviations. So I just say what I mean. You guys know what I mean. You yeah, respond 100%. like that. Yeah, <laughs> just two scientists just, just talking about scientific yeah. stuff. Super know? scientific. You really trust what I say all the time. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other. Yeah, problem, I'm Asian. My friend. You, know, you can trust me. With you my, can trust with him. Words. Yeah, 100%. Great. Yeah, this is going to be a fun response after this podcast. My God, <laughs> yeah. I love it so much. Again, I can't even tell you. 
but I just, you know, I'm grateful for you and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm, I'm going to thank you in advance because I know that you're going to help progress and help so many people. You're using the tools at your disposal and you're taking the opportunities seriously. And I'm so grateful to hear that there's people like you that are doing the work because I know that when you execute a mission, you always succeed in getting your target. And I know that you will do that in the psychedelic world for our vets and, and our first responders and just humanity in general. So we're grateful for you. Can you do me a favor and tell everyone where they can kind of find out about you? Yeah. Um, I kind of only have an Instagram and it's at the underscore flying Hawaiian. <laughs> and we will so tag it. Yeah. So please do. Um, I'm open to answer any questions about anything, past experiences, psychedelics. If you want to learn how to my process and how I got into Harvard, um, really anything, or just, you know, need someone to talk to you, give me a holler, send me a message and I'll do my best to answer any questions you guys have. And I know everyone appreciates that. And he means that true, truly when he says that. So what we'll do is we'll tag everything and we'll make sure that people know how to get a hold of you and um, they'll start bombarding you with questions. And then that will be on you for making that mistake, but yeah, you'll get, you'll get hit. And I know that people will value this episode and this won't be the first one. I got stuff to talk to you about. We got to discuss rugby and those Mm -hmm. tiny weird shorts you guys are wearing when you play against Stanford. We need to come back and discuss where you're at in psychedelics and how you're pushing forward to better your community. And so we'll be hearing from you real soon, but otherwise, thank you so much for your time. Stay with me, everyone else. I will see you all next week. It's been a pleasure. See you later.